0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Gail Rosengren, author of the middle grade titles, What the Moon Said, and Cold War on Maple Street. Gail majored in creative writing and was the editor of her college literary magazine. She has worked in libraries for the Pleasant Company for the American Girl series and has published in children's magazines as well. Gail joined me to talk about how different writing skills can be used to create a freelance career from writing copy to copy editing to assisting with research and writing for the magazine market. A young girl is afraid that her first day of school will mean leaving her best friend, Nani, a giraffe, behind. This picture book set in Botswana is the perfect match for any child starting something new to ease worries and anxiety. Nani and I by Savannah Hendricks. You have an extensive background in writing and publishing, beginning with editing the literary magazine at your college and leading up to working for The Pleasant Company, who make the American Girl dolls and books, as well as having shorts published in such esteemed children's magazines as Cricket, Ladybug, Jack and Jill, and Children's Digest. If you could talk a little bit about your career outside of novels, I think it's really interesting to illustrate all the ways that a writer can freelance and make some money outside of a traditional publishing model?
1: I majored in creative writing in school because I always knew I wanted to be a writer. So when I got out, of course, the first job I had to take was secretarial because that was all there was. But within a year, I was able to smear a job in an advertising agency, and I was writing copy, which was great. It was fun. It was creative. And it was also a good start into writing because you had to be very aware of your space. You had to know just how many words you could use or how many characters. That led to some freelance work for them after I had to leave to have my first child. So I I did freelance work then. Later on, I found a job at the public library part-time and worked out well with my schedule with my husband's work and with the children. It was a very comfortable setting for me, and it was great to be able to turn kids on to books. I just love doing that. It was great, too, because I got to see all the new books when they came in. I established the first young adult department there, and when I left, I went to Wisconsin because my husband had a job change, and I went to the American Girl, then called Pleasant Company, now called American Girl, and I worked in their reference library helping the editors do their research for the various characters and then from that I started freelancing doing copy editing work for them. You can see how one job is kind of leading into the other as if it were planned but of course it wasn't I did freelance work for copywriting and then copy editing. And around the time that I started working at American Girl, I was doing short stories. It fit in with my life right then. I didn't have a lot of downtime for writing anything longer. And I'd always wanted to write novels, but this was a good place to start. And once again, It taught me how to focus and be tight. You don't have unlimited space. You have to learn how to take unnecessary words out and really keep it moving. And I entered some contests. The deadline for when they were going to announce it went past by a couple of months because they had so many entries that they could not read them all in time. They had over a thousand entries. I don't think I got anything beyond a certificate, but third place out of a thousand, that's not bad. I was happy with that. That led, interestingly enough, to something else because little did I know, but a few blocks down the way was someone else who was writing. Her name was Julia and she called me out of the blue, you know, she saw my name and it had my town listed, looked me up, gave me a call and we got together and that led to a critique group that was formed and the basic people of which are you know several are still involved and it's been 20 years so that critique group led to my introduction to SCBWI which for anyone who writes for children if they don't know about it you should the SCBWI is the abbreviation for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And it is an organization that just provides so much information. It's like taking you by the hand and taking someone who is a wannabe writer or a beginner writer. And I was at that time. I'd had some success. I published a few short stories, but I still had so much to learn. And SCBWI takes a beginning writer and turns them into a professional. It's just a great training ground and it's just a great support group on a, a wider level because you are mixing with other people who have the same interest and the same goals. Through networking, we'll also hear about a little freelance opportunity or a library that's looking for a panel and they want some people to come in. And Writers in particular, and I think writers for children in particular, are so kind and they will reach out and support one another. It is not a, a competitive situation. We all know how hard it is and with the advent of computers, which I didn't have way back in the beginning, it would be even easier to find freelance work too. Markets for contests, etc. There's not just fiction writing, there's article writing too. So there's a myriad of possibilities for bringing in a few extra dollars and also just pumping up your resume, your writing credits to include on those queries to agents and editors.
0: I wanna ask you if you could to talk a little bit about what writing copy is and also about what copy editing is. Because those are two different things. A lot of listeners here are aspiring writers and they may not be familiar with those terms. Copywriting,
1: all right, for instance, I was working in an advertising department of a retail department store. It would have various things that were going to be on sale. Say there's a blouse, okay, that's going on sale. All of the information about that blouse, there'd be a picture of it, and then there'd be some typed-up information about if it's polyester, a polyester blend, etc., the style of the collar, the long sleeve, short-sleeved, all those descriptive details, what colors it's available in, etc., And and I would take that, those dry little facts, and given enough space, would make it sound very lovely and compelling, and you would want that blouse before it was finished. Sometimes you didn't have enough space to really do too much, but get that information, the necessary information out, but in a little smoother and more appealing way. And again, space is always the issue. So that was copywriting. The more fun copywriting was when we were going to have a campaign and we were doing headlines or a promotion. You're trying to tie it in to the message, to the theme. That was copywriting. It's limiting, but yet that's what makes it the challenge. It was kind of fun to to make something out of very little. (laughs) Copy editing, by contrast, was getting someone else's work And I did this not in a an advertising capacity. I did this at American Girl. In this case, I was reading early copies of books, what we call an ARC, an advanced reader copy. And you're going through that and finding any place, well, there might be a typo, definitely want to point that out. But if a word isn't used right, like onto and on to, anything from A grammatical error spelling error misuse of a word anything that's not clear something you think might be inaccurate and then you look it up to confirm that copy editors are like really great when you're a writer you love your copy editor because they're gonna find the tiniest mistakes that you make started doing proofreading which was different that was just mm-hmm. finding the obvious typos and grammatical errors in terms of punctuation or whatever. When you get to copy editing, that's, that's a whole nother level up and it's looking more at the content and it's remembering, oh, they made a reference to that back in chapter two and it was described differently. The editor is gonna go back to the writer and ask them, which is right, which is correct? A good copy editor is going to catch your mistakes before they go out to the public.
0: People don't realize that copy editing isn't just checking your grammar and spelling and things like that. They do fact checking and they do continuity checking and it really can save your butt. When I was writing Female of the Species, I had, the students were reading Crime and Punishment in their classroom. I said it was by Tolstoy. Oops. Oops. And I know that it's not by Tolstoy. Like, I know that. But I was reading War and Peace at the time, so it was sitting on my nightstand. Sure. You know how that works. I do. It just ended up in the book. And so I said that Tolstoy wrote Crime and Punishment. He did not. My critique partners did not catch it. My editor did not catch it. It got to copy edits, and my copy editor is like, hey, you're uh, you're I'm wrong. wrong. And I was so embarrassed. It was a point of pride for me. I wanted to make sure the copy editor knew that I knew that Dostoevsky wrote (laughs) She caught that, thank goodness. And then I had an interesting one that I thought was very well done when I was writing A Madness So Discreet. There's a point when someone mentions the national anthem. They are singing the Francis Guy Key song, and they say that they're singing the National Anthem. The book took place in 1890. Of course, the song existed before then, but my copy editor sends me a little note, and she's like, yeah, the song totally existed, but it was not declared the National Anthem. Not until 1920-something, and I was like, wow, that's amazing. When you're reading as a copy editor, how do you stop yourself from just reading the book? On one level, you do have to be reading the book
1: because you're not gonna catch those continuity things. You have to do it with a certain lens on. You are reading it as the reader would, but you're just taking closer note of the details. You have to be a person who really appreciates detail. (laughs) I'm sure it's a heck of a job.
0: Up next, Using the three things that all middle-grade audiences have in common in order to break the historical ice, and who to target when creating supplemental material for your books. Livy's best friends have abandoned her for boyfriends, her mother ignores her, and her terminally ill sister has asked her for a promise she's not sure she can keep. Livy finds refuge with Bianca, the school freak. As the relationship deepens and it comes time to take the romance public, will Livy be able to take that step? How far is she willing to go for the people she loves? An Unstill Life by Kate Larkendale is a book that will challenge and move you. Let's talk about your books. Your middle grade novel, What the Moon Said released from Putnam in 2014, tells the story of a 10-year-old and her family dealing with the hardships of life during the Great Depression. And your latest, Cold War on Maplewood Street, touches on the Cuban Missile Crisis and the tension in American homes as a result. When writing such difficult subjects, for modern young readers, what are your methods to bring these historical eras and problems to life?
1: Well, I usually start with the premise that they have three things In common and those are home family and school so those are all three things they can kind of hook into but once they do they're going to discover there are differences for instance in what the moon said the story begins in Chicago but they move out to a farm very early in the book because her father's lost his job because of the depression. There's a big difference. There's no indoor plumbing. There's no electricity. They have to use candles and kerosene lamps. Very very different than even what Esther knew back in the city but certainly from what readers today would be experiencing in their homes. And then as far as School. She's now going to a school that is only a two-room schoolhouse and walking about a mile and a half to get there. And then there's family. The families were different then, too, in terms of what was expected of each member. For instance, she had chores that she definitely had to do. Everybody had to kind of pull their weight in a family, especially on a farm there were these differences that a reader could definitely relate to. Differences, and yet, things that kids can relate to. Breakfast, food, school, family. But the um, unique thing in this one is the fact that her mother, who only came to the United States about 15 years earlier, was an immigrant from Russia. And Russian people, probably because of all the hardships that they endured, were very superstitious. I believe they still are, but then definitely, and I think the poorer the people were, the more so. So much of their lives seemed to depend on luck. A good crop or not, good weather or not, health or not, so it's easy to see how they kind of fell into that association of certain things meaning something else. And the title of the book comes from that because Her mother is always seeing signs having to do with the moon. In the very first chapter, she sees a ring around the moon the night before, so she knows something bad's going to happen. And indeed, Dad comes home from work that day and says he's lost his job. That's kind of the whole tie-in with that. And I don't think that kids today are very superstitious. I think maybe the, the remaining things might be walking under a ladder or Maybe breaking a mirror or something, but I don't even know if they're into that. So they really get are interested in hearing about these superstitions and how firmly Ma believed in them to the point of seeing a sign that makes her think that a very dear friend of Esther's is dangerous in some way and making her end the friendship, or at least telling her to end the friendship because Esther has to decide. She has to reconcile how much she's going to let superstitions rule her life. Then again, in Cold War, we have home, we have school, and we have family, but we have a different setup for family because dad left the family years before, leaves her with a single mom, and she had an older brother, but now he's gone off to join the Navy, and she's just devastated that he's left because he had promised when their dad left that he'd never leave her. We've got situations where things are the same, and yet things are different. There are, in this one, at least in the Cold War, they had phones in the house, usually just one, though, and generally attached to a wall. Most homes at that time did have a TV set, but we're talking a TV set, and it's black and white because there really weren't any colored television shows yet there's school and in this case it's a big school there's dozens of classrooms not just two (laughs) so i think kids tie into that and once you have them connecting with a character on those basic ways seeing what their life is like compared to your own then i think it's easy to add in the historical tension what becomes in what the moon said a real struggle to survive a winter where they're running out of food. In Cold War, of course, the threat of nuclear war. First you get those basic connector experiences, and then you make them care about some issue that the character is having. And once you've got that, the rest of it's easy.
0: I think when you're writing a historical or any kind of period piece, The most important thing to remember is that people have always been people. We still feel the same. We still react the same emotionally in situations. And I think with children, younger readers, you make a great point about the three things that they still have in common with people from a historical era. And that's a great gateway to open in between those two very different lives. That's really smart. Definitely want to talk to you about your outreach because I think you do a great job. Your website has material for classroom use and also for the readers themselves. You take your characters' fictional lives a step further by showing what games they might have played, books they might have read, and other ways to illustrate what life would have been like during their times. So when you're putting together this kind of material, who are you targeting? Are you targeting teachers and parents or are you looking for those to reach the readers themselves?
1: Hopefully all three, but primarily I did it for the kids, the readers. I have adult readers too, but for the children who are reading, there's only so much information that you can pack into a book. I can't put all the details that I would love to put in there because I find them interesting because it would probably slow down the story too much they might put the readers off because there are too many details but once they finish a book and especially if it's a book that they end up loving they don't really want to let go of that world so it's great for them to have a place to go and find out more about it now it's really interesting to go there and find out wow they really didn't have very many books available to read when esther was. Growing up. And then, as well, there is what did they do for fun? It's usually very different than today. For Esther, she had one doll, that was it. She really didn't have any books either. She borrowed them from the library, and that was something she missed when she moved to the country because they didn't really have much of a library. The games they played were simple ones checkers, cards. This story is actually based on episodes that my mother told me about from her childhood. Her name really was Esther. She was inquisitive, could be very stubborn, and she had a great sense of humor. So I tried to show all of that in the book, but I also took a lot of literary license and fictionalized a lot. It gave me a chance to really look at what my mom's life was like other different aspects of her life with the games and the books and also music oh and there's a trailer there too for the book and in cold war cold war on maplewood street there's actually a link so that the readers can listen to john f kennedy giving his famous speech letting everyone know about this crisis on that monday October 22nd and the various news articles and was able to put photographs of those headlines. There's also things like American Bandstand which was a TV show every Saturday morning that had featured teens and the music of the week and the top songs and they were all dancing. So kids can see kids their age or a little older doing the twist and The Stroll and all these dances from the time, just to get a real sense of pop culture. There's just a lot of things available that I think it would be fun for parents to explore with their child and say, oh, yes, I remember some of that. And then there are pages for teachers. One talks about school visits that I'm available to do. I also do free 15-minute Skype visits. That's another option. In addition, I provide discussion questions for the books and I list actual projects in every category from math to music and from English to art that you can do that work around the books. I think the teachers would find it helpful.
0: Definitely. I think it's a great way to expand and reach out to audiences. And I know teachers are always looking for ways to help the children in the classroom connect more fully with fiction, especially for the age range that you're writing. So I think it's wonderful. Coming up, school visits and how the enthusiasm of the administration and staff, or lack of, can trickle down to the students. You do a lot of school visits, and that's something that comes up a lot among aspiring writers and new writers as a source of anxiety because they can be tricky and intimidating. As an author, sometimes I show up and I find the teachers have drilled so hard into the students that they have to be polite and attentive that they're scared to laugh at jokes and they're scared to ask questions because they've been told to sit still and listen. And then I've had the opposite experience where they're hardly paying attention except for three or four kids in the front row that actually want to be there. So if you could share some of your tips for classroom control or audience interaction or anything really about how to do a successful school visit.
1: I'd have to say that the bottom line on doing a successful visit really is primarily in the hands of the school and the teacher who has organized the event. I come to an event and I do basically the same event at each place. Here's two different examples. One experience is the best I've ever had, and the other is the worst. Now in both cases, I did everything ahead of time that I was supposed to do in terms of informing them of what I was going to do, what I was going to need, how much time, etc. etc. So I arrive at the first school. Right at the start, I know this is going to be great because their big signboard outside of the school says, welcome Gail Rosengren, author, what the moon said. So I pull into the parking lot and there is a saved parking space for me. Go inside. And of course you always have to stop in the office and I get to the office and they, Oh, the author is here. And they call the the librarian who is my contact person, and she takes me in, and and there's this room that's all set up already. The books that I'm going to sign in advance are stacked up there. Every grade level had what they called ambassadors, a boy and a girl. And two at a time, they came down to to the library where I was setting up and introduced themselves and shook my hand and welcomed me to their school and told me how excited they were to have me there. The principal came down and she did the introduction for my actual presentation to the groups. It just was amazing. They made me feel like a rock star. Compare that to this. I arrive at the school. I have a really hard time finding where I'm supposed to park. There was no space nearby so I had to trudge and carry all of my books and of course it was winter. This kind of thing doesn't happen on a nice spring day. It was cold and it was slippery. I walk in and introduce myself at the office and the woman turns around and she says does anybody know anything about an author visit? so finally if you can wait a minute we'll try to find somebody who knows what's going on I told them I said well it will be so and so the librarian so they call her down she's very nice and we're walking down the hall she's taking me back to the library and we pass a couple of different teachers in the hall not a smile let alone a welcome or oh how nice to see you nothing the kids I mean, even the questions that they asked, I mean, usually that's the most fun part. And I just felt like it was totally because the adults did not have any enthusiasm. They hadn't made it special. And so why should the kids think that it's special? They enjoyed it. They could have been prepared so much better. And I don't mean in terms of good behavior. I just mean it's really nice if a teacher can at least read a chapter of the book so that the children have some idea what it's about and can ask questions. I do feel that the responsibility primarily does kind of rests on the school, the teachers, the staff, all of them, and and kind of making it
0: special. I think one of the things that I have often found is so helpful, like you're saying, is when the staff is excited and I've had similar experiences where, especially administration, which I know they have other things that they're doing, but I've been in schools where the principal never came to say hello to me. There was no interaction whatsoever. And I've been in schools where the principal was outside waiting for me to show up so he could help me carry in books. Really, there's a trickle down there. And when administration is behind you, that goes down to the staff and it goes down to the students. I really do find it so helpful. So if you're listening and you are in a school system and you want to know how to do good author visits, that's one of the best ways. Oh, and something else I had happen that I thought was so cool. I showed up at a school one time, and yes, I had a reserved parking spot, which was so cool and helpful, by the way. But the kids had actually taken chalk and decorated it and all of the kids had like written little messages to me and done like fan art and it was so cool and it was just one of those things where it was a long drive I think I drove like two hours or something and it was of course very early in the morning so I'd gotten up at like five and I drove like two hours to go to a school visit and school visits are very draining physically gotta get awake here gotta get in the right mood I pulled into the driveway and front, their big sign, it had my name and welcome, Mindy McGinnis. And then there was a parking spot that kids had decorated for me and it made it so easy for me to be like, oh, they want me here. This is great. And and then I got excited. And so there really is a trickle down effect all the way right down to your author. Yeah, it's really hard to
1: generate all of the enthusiasm on your own. It's a draining experience even when it goes well. You're performing, you're on, (laughs) and you have to stay on no matter what the little rascals are doing over in the corner. Very first ever presentation was to 350 kids in a gymnasium, followed by a break to do some signings for their books, then 400 in the next batch talk about drained at the end of it because I was so nervous anyway first time they were very very attentive there wasn't anybody who was talking so that it was a distraction from me I've done other ones where right in the first row they're horsing around you know if they're talking and I'm talking there's always teachers if they're not correcting them I don't really feel like it's my place to stop. I don't feel I'm there to be a disciplinarian, yet they are impacting what I am there to do in a negative way, so it's a problem, and really I I use humor to the greatest extent I can, and I rely on the teachers, and otherwise I just steam ahead, talk a little louder, focus on the kids who are paying attention. You make the best of a bad situation.
0: I agree with you. I don't think that it's our job to call them out. They obviously don't respect you already because they're talking and not listening to you. So correcting them, I don't believe, is going to have much of an effect. And a lot of authors might think that just by shutting them down or pointing them out, it's going to be embarrassing for them and they're going to stop. And 20 years ago, maybe, but not now. And then you've pitted yourself in a battle of wills. They may very well be like, you can't tell me what to do. And then what are you going to do? Because you are about to get into a fight with a fourth grader. And that doesn't look good on anybody. If there are kids that aren't that interested in listening to you, fine. You can't make them love you. That's how I feel about it. Getting there in the first place, that's always kind of difficult sometimes for some authors other than getting an invitation from the school or the library How do you go about getting those slots, getting a school visit, getting invited to a library? How do you go about building those bridges?
1: I've only done a few libraries. The one was in my own town. I approached the librarian about my book and suggested it might fit in with their mother daughter book club. And they were very excited and said, Oh, that would be great. In a lot of instances, it's better really to email because then they can read it at their leisure. I do think the best way to to do it is to connect online. And if you don't get a response, then follow up with a phone call. And you can, it's so easy now because you can look up the school online. You know, usually you approach the librarian, but if she's not responsive, the head of the PTO or PTA, whatever it's called in your area, is also another good person because a lot of times they're the ones who are bringing in authors because they raise funds. They can be even better than the librarian on occasion.
0: Do you have any specific place where readers can find you online? I know you have a lovely site, if you could talk about that.
1: My website is www.gailrosengren.com. And just remember that Gail is spelled G-A-Y-L-E. If they would go to GailRosengren.com, they will find all of the features that we've been talking about, all of those extras. And they will also find a place where, if they like, they can write to me. They can send me a note. Mm, Very cool. Very
0: cool. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis, music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.